Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present Let Us Try, a ballad of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Let us try to stem the tide to beautify our countryside. We offer you our hand. Let us try. We can help to make things grow. Help to make the waters flow. To save our precious land. Let us try to help you clean up all our waters. Cause to try is to succeed. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you might not believe it. Here's what the United States Corps of Engineers wants to do to free salmon that are stuck behind dams in Oregon's Willamette River Valley. Build a floating vacuum the size of a football field with enough pumps to suck up a small river, capture tiny young salmon in the vacuum's mouth, and flush them into massive storage tanks. Then, load the fish onto trucks, drive them downstream, and dump them back in the water. An enormous fish collector like this would uh, cost up to $450 million. Nothing of its scale has ever been tested. And yet, such a fish collector is the biggest element of the Army Corps' nearly $2 billion plan to keep the salmon from going extinct. The Corps says its devices will work. A cheaper alternative, halting dam operations so fish can pass, would, say the Corps engineers, create widespread harm to hydroelectric customers, boaters, and farmers. Quote, bottom line, we think what we've proposed will support sustainable, healthy fish populations over time, says Liza Wells, sweet Liza Wells, the deputy engineer for the Corps' Portland District. But, reporting by Oregon Public Broadcasting and ProPublica, casts doubt on the Corps' assertions. Now, public ProPublica, in case you think they've been uh, targeting the core for uh, quite a while. Um, Au contraire, mon frère, in uh, the entire story of Katrina, the hurricane that hit the Mississippi Gulf Coast and the flooding that followed in the greater New Orleans area, ProPublica did not one story on the f- fact that two different 
university-based researchers, research teams, found the Corps culpable for the damage to New Orleans. But here they are, and they've, they've, they've finally awakened to the fact that there's something wrong somewhere with the core. Some leading scientists, according to the reporting from Oregon Public Broadcasting and ProPublica, have said the project won't save as many salmon as the core says. A comprehensive scientific review in 2017 concluded the use of elaborate fish traps and tanker trucks to haul salmon. That's the core's idea will only, quote, prolong their decline to extinction, unquote. They're not talking about the core, they're talking about the salmon. Moreover, many of the interests the core say it's protecting say they don't need the help, not power companies, not farmers, and not businesses reliant on recreational boating. No, there's a story of how the core a taxpayer-funded federal agency, despite decades of criticism, continues to double down on costly feats of engineering to reverse environmental catastrophes its own engineers created. That's quoting the report from Oregon Public Broadcasting and and, uh, ProPublica. The only peer-reviewed cost-benefit analysis of the Willamette Dams published a couple of years ago, found that the collective environmental harms, upkeep costs, and risks of collapse at the dams outweigh the economic benefits. Twice, Congress has called on the Corps to study shutting down hydropower, which would free up more water for salmon. The Corps blew its first deadline last year. That is to say, went right through it, passed it, and now says it will perform an initial assessment to help decide whether to do the study required by law. Emails obtained by ProPublica and Oregon Public Broadcasting show that as core officials hashed out how to handle a mandate from Congress, they proposed actions that could increase public support for preserving hydropower. The core is now finalizing a plan that would continue electricity generation for the next 30 years. The debate and the consequences of the decision are real for the confederated tribes of the Grand Ronde who have fished the Willamette for thousands of years. Grand Ronde leaders say they've met with the Corps seven times to spell out potential alternatives to building giant fish collectors and maintaining hydropower. Quote, they always feel like they can just build themselves out of problems. And this is really something we don't need to build, said a former tribal council member for the Grand Ronde, Michael Langley. The tribes have also said generating electricity at the dams doesn't pencil out for anyone. By the Corps' own estimates, the cost of hydropower over the next 30 years will outstrip revenues from electricity consumers by more than $700 million. The tribes found a letter with the Corps in February that included a pointed summation, quote, Killing salmon to lose money deserves a deeper analysis, unquote. In uh, 2021, after salmon numbers 
in the uh, Willamette area reached historic lows. A federal judge said the fish's recovery had been stymied for too long. He admonished the Corps for having, quote, fought tooth and nail, unquote, against better measures for fish ever since it was first sued over the issue in 2000. Foot-dragging that the judge said had pushed the fish closer to the edge of extinction. Scientists have observed that whenever reservoir levels dipped seasonally, more fish passed through dams. Core biologists had been experimenting with draining a reservoir until it nearly replicated the original river channel. That drawdown of water worked. It moved salmon quickly and safely past the dam and limited in many of the invasive predators dwelling in the reservoir. At virtually no cost, the Corps had increased the number of adult fish that returned tenfold, far past what biologists thought possible. But when the judge ruled that the Corps should try partial drawdowns of the water at three other dams, the Corps came up with its uh, fish collector's idea. They uh, tried it on the Willamette in the 1950s, declared it a failure. The Corps tried, decided to try again this century, building a small fish collector on an offshoot of the Willamette River. To track the baby fish they were trying to entice, biologists implanted 1,500 with microchips and released them behind the dam. Eight found their way into the collector. The Corps came up with an environmental impact statement about its plans for fish collectors. It acknowledges its numbers are a guess. It says collectors, the agency contemplates, quote, have yet to be successfully implemented, and there's considerable risk and uncertainty about the realized effectiveness of these structures, unquote, the Corps. In a statement to ProPublica and Oregon Public Broadcasting, Corps officials went further, calling their projected cess rates, quote, overestimates. A researcher at the University of California, Davis, published in a uh, journal called Fisheries a couple of years ago, a warning that the kind of trap and haul programs the course proposed should, quote, proceed with extreme caution, unquote. The author said, success rates are artificially inflated and the removing young salmon from the river stresses them increasing their risk of dying before they find their way home to spawn. Quote, transportation of fish, whether it's juveniles or adults, has a really seismic effect on the fish themselves. The Corps claims that people throughout the Willamette Valley cannot live without the hydropower, recreational boating, and irrigation that the dams make possible. The trouble is, according to OPB, and ProPublica, it's hard to find people in the Willamette Valley who feel the same way. Even the hydropower industry opposes the Corps' plan to continue with hydropower. Ending power generation on the Willamette would, quote, be the best for customers, the best for fish, and the best for taxpayers, writes the executive director of the Public Power Council and Mark Sherwood, head of the Native Fish Society, in a joint letter a couple of years ago. 
records newly obtained by Oregon Public Broadcasting and ProPublica via the Freedom of Information Act show the federal government's hydropower agency for the region, Bonneville Power Administration, also wants the Corps to do away with hydropower on the Willamette. The streams feeding the Willamette are wildly inefficient at producing electricity compared with dams on larger rivers, costing up to five times as much to light a home. And yet, the Corps' response is, let us try. Hello, welcome to the show. Could be. soon as it shows It may come cannonballing down through the sky Gleaming its eye bright as a rose Who knows It's only just out of reach Down a block, out of reach Under a tree I got a feeling there's a miracle too Gonna come true, coming to me It be, yes it could Something's coming, something good If I can't wait Something's coming, I don't know what it is But it is gonna be great With a click, with a shock Phone will jingle, door will knock Open the latch Something's coming, don't know when But it's soon catch the moon One-handed catch Sling down the river Come on, deliver to me Maybe From New Orleans, Louisiana, I'm Harry Shearer. Welcome. Welcoming you to this edition of Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole III. Well, here's news to remember. Just keep all of this in mind for about the next five years. The city of Los Angeles has developed its Clean Energy 2028 roadmap in an attempt to accelerate a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions prior to its hosting of the 2028 Olympic and Paralympic Games. Plans being carried out by the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. The city's official clean tech business is part of the Clean Energy Partnership. It aims to reduce greenhouse gases in LA by 25% by 2030. 
in time for the Olympics. The uh, partnership's looking to accelerate the move to 100% use of clean energy <laughs> while ensuring it meets the needs of transportation electrification, decarbonization of buildings, and grid resiliency in the greater Los Angeles region by the time of the Games. The roadmap intends to reduce greenhouse gas, greenhouse gas emissions by an additional 15% across the electricity, building, and transportation sectors. It's due to be met through cleanly distributed energy generated, building electrification, energy transportation connections, and grid efficiency and resiliency. I can hardly wait to electrify Greater LA's buildings and transportation while ensuring grid resilience, we need unparalleled regional collaboration as well as innovation, says President of the Partnership, Matt Peterson. Thanks to the bold targets set in this roadmap, we were able to leverage private and public funding to drive innovation through initiatives like a virtual power plant to better improve our air quality and health while creating good-paying green jobs. <sighs> Where do we hear that language elsewhere? LACAI is proud to work together with all our partners to accelerate equitable climate action before the world arrives in Los Angeles for the Olympics, says Matt. In addition to the environmental goals, LA is also using the Olympic Games as a reason to upgrade its public transport systems. Yes, it has some. The uh, Metro has identified 15 projects it's aiming to implement in time for the games. These include extra bus-only lanes. Can't wait for those. Key transport hubs near event venues could, al could also be enhanced to handle crowds with features including temporary platforms, overcrossings, and portable ramps. Furthermore, improvements to light rail and opening up the streets to arts, culture, and recreation is also planned. Get your tickets now. It all sounds kind of good because it's a movement. The Olympics is our, and we all need one. Say it with me now. Every day! In the meantime, there's another kind of games. The Commonwealth Games... These are games whose participants are the nations of the former British common... Well, no, there's still a British Commonwealth. Former British Empire, now the Commonwealth, soon to be the what? What was that? The former chair of Victoria's abandoned bid for those games, Victoria being a major state in Australia, has revealed her fears for the future of those games because of, quote, exploding costs and the fact that big countries, quote, don't see any benefit of continuing to do this, unquote. Peggy O'Neill was surprised but not surprised when the Victorian government pulled the 
plug on hosting the 2026 Games due to budgetary issues declaring early indications where not enough money had been ad, uh, allocated. She was eventually told the plans for the Commonwealth Games in Victoria were being abandoned and a financial settlement with the Games Federation was being negotiated. The mayor of the Gold Coast announced plans to rescue the Games with a streamlined event. O'Neill, the chair of the Commonwealth Games bid, said the increasingly prohibitive costs could put the event's future in doubt, as can the fact that Canada has pulled out of hosting the 2030 Games. Quote, it's expensive to host any international competition, and the Commonwealth itself has some pretty poor countries and some pretty wealthy countries, and I don't know those wealthy countries see any benefit of continuing to do this, said O'Neill. It's a very expensive undertaking, she adds, and usually for not much benefit. There's always the talk about tourism, but I saw some figures that nobody had really made any money from these international sporting events. When he, unquote, when he pulled the plug in July, former Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews claimed the budget had ballooned to $4.5 billion U.S., with the decision sparking a Senate inquiry, uh, inquiry that he ignored. O'Neill confirmed it was clear the games, which were to be held across regional Victoria, couldn't be achieved for original forecasts quite early after taking up a role. Quote, we were notified the contract was going to be canceled, and it was a budgetary issue. I was surprised and not totally surprised. It had nothing to do with the politics. Under our budget numbers we had put together, we needed more money, and the reply was taking longer to get back than normal. It was going to be hard to pull this off in three years because there was so much to do. In the end, if there's no money, there's no money. Unquote. The former chair of Victoria's abandoned bid for the Commonwealth Games. Apparently, it's not a movement. And we don't need one. And now... News of the Godly. So there's this other IHOP. Not the one you're thinking about. Not the one I was thinking about until I uh, was aware of this item. There's a thing in Kansas City called the International House of Prayer. In the late 1990s, it launched a global round-the-clock prayer meeting. The longtime head of the International House of Prayer according to the religious news, religion news service, has been accused of, yeah, clergy sexual abuse by former leaders in the movement. Now, this is a movement. Quote, a few days ago, we made the leadership team of the International House of Prayer aware of serious allegations spanning several decades concerning its founder, Mike Bickle, said former IHOP leader Dwayne Roberts. And Brian Kim, former pastor of the Forerunner Christian Fellowship, which has close ties to IHOP, 
in a statement uh, released a week ago. Quote, without going into details to protect the privacy of the victim's identities, we found these allegations of clergy sexual abuse by Mike Bickle to be credible and longstanding. The credibility of these allegations is not based on any one experience or any one victim, but on the collective and corroborating testimony of the experiences of several victims. Unquote. Bickle is one of the most influential, charismatic Christians in the United States, a leading figure in the so-called New Apostolic Reformation that seems to make prophecy and the leadership of apostles a major part of modern evangelical practice. Bickle is a former pastor in the Vineyard Church movement, he led his Kansas City-based congregation to break away from that denomination in the 1990s after conflicts with other leaders. The IHOP movement inspired churches around the country from a wide range of denominations to set up 24 hours a day, seven to eight days a week prayer rooms. It has about 2,000 volunteer intercessionary missionaries who raise their own financial support, according to the group's website. News of the alleged sexual abuse came less than a week after Bickle preached a sermon warning about the dangers of false allegations. Leaders of IHOP announced on Sunday, October 29th, that Bickle has been asked not to teach or preach, take part in the group's prayer room, or engage in social media as they look into the allegations, quote, we are heartbroken to share that we have recently become aware of serious allegations, including sexual immorality directed against Mike Bickle, unquote, the leader said in a statement at a church service and later posted on X, quote, our leadership team takes allegations very seriously. We are laboring for truth, light, redemption, and righteousness. Leaders also told staff members to avoid using the term black horse. Bickle had used the term in the past to talk about false allegations against church leaders. We are not going to be secretive, said an IHOP leader, speaking to worshipers, but we are going to be as careful as we can be to stay in step with the leadership of Jesus. And so, in that again, I appeal, be patient. Quoting the uh, former leaders of the denomination, to be clear, the allegations made about Mike Bickle's misconduct were sexual in nature, where the marriage covenant was not honored. Furthermore, the allegations made also reveal that Mike Bickle used his position of spiritual authority over the victims to manipulate them, unquote. Possibly bad news from the other IHOP. Syrup optional. Now a little news of plastics, not micro, but, you know, the full, full big-bodied plastics themselves. By the way, speaking of which, there is a commercial, the plastics industry is now running it uh, pretty heavy intensity on uh, commercial television. And uh, one of the things they're saying they're doing 
to improve the situation with plastics is to make them more durable. Yep. Because they're not already hard enough to get rid of. But this from the Intercept, when oil and gas companies first launched their campaign to promote recycling, they pitched the process as a viable and sustainable solution to the plastic pollution problem. More than three decades later, the vast majority of plastic waste still ends up incinerated or dumped. Less than one-tenth is recycled, and as you know from this broadcast, microplastics have been found virtually, found virtually everywhere on Earth, including the human bloodstream. The petrochemical industry is now pitching another solution, advanced recycling, the term also known as chemical recycling, is used to describe a variety of approaches. They can supposedly turn even the most hard-to-recycle plastics into sustainable fuels or oils and chemicals that can now be used in new plastic production. But a new 159-page report released by the International Pollutants Elimination Network and Beyond Plastics casts serious doubt on the technology's ability to make even a modest dent on the world's growing plastic burden. In the most comprehensive report on chemical recycling facilities in the U.S. up to now, researchers looked at the operations of 11 companies across the country to examine the plastic industry's claim that chemical recycling can significantly help reduce global plastic pollution. Quote, The science and data currently available do not support this claim, and actually point to the conclusion that chemical recycling would support expansion of plastic production while potentially causing unacceptable levels of environmental and social harm, as well as impacts on human health through emissions, waste generation, energy consumption, and contaminated outputs, unquote, according to the report's authors. I try to keep my outputs uncontaminated personally. Researchers found that collectively the 11 facilities have the stated ability to process less than 1.3% of America's annual plastic waste. Additionally, it's unclear if many of the facilities were even operating at their optimum or maximum stated capacity. For a lot of these plants, how much plastic they've actually processed is unknown, says one of the contributors to the report, Deputy Director of Beyond Plastics, there was no requirement for public disclosure, she adds. The lack of transparency surrounding chemical recycling facilities is especially concerning given the fact that five of the 11 plants have received public subsidies in the form of federal grants, state tax abatements, low-interest green bonds, green bonds, and government loan guarantees. Quote, there's an enormous amount of industry-driven hype around chemical recycling. The main reason for that is that you don't want to see legislation at the state or federal level that restricts the production of plastic. That's unquoting Lee Bell, policy advisor to IPEN, a network of more than 600 non-governmental organizations in over 125 countries, quote, it's widely recognized that the only way to reduce plastic pollution in a substantive way, says Bell, quoting again, is to cut production 
of plastic itself. The data available about chemical recycling isn't exactly reassuring. Report from the National Resources Defense Council in uh, February of last year looked at state-level permit data, found that many chemical recycling facilities are permitted to release hazardous air pollutants and, quote, chemicals known or suspected to cause cancer or other serious health effects, like birth defects, unquote. The Beyond Plastics report also cites scientific literature that has found, quote, emissions of persistent cancer-causing compounds from chemical recycling facilities or their fuel products, including dioxins, volatile organic compounds, and heavy metals, unquote. This is uh, the show from New Orleans. And now the bad news portion of the program, starting with news of the warm. Won't you? 
listen to the war. We can listen to the war. Limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, long the stated goal of global policymakers, is going to be even harder than previously thought. That's according to a new study published this week in the journal Nature Climate Change. There's no way to know the exact amount of greenhouse gas emissions people could emit in order to meet the goal. Instead, climate scientists use percentages. The sixth assessment report produced by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change set a carbon budget of 400 gigatons of carbon dioxide from 2020 onwards. Staying within that budget would have given humans a 67% chance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. But the new paper, which one of its co-authors called an extension of the IPCC's work, presents a slightly less forgiving carbon budget. Paper estimates 250 gigatons of CO2 starting in January of this year to give humanity a 50% chance of hitting the goal. The change in estimates has more to do with an improved methodology than with mankind's behavior over the last few years, although the authors of the paper paper were quick to point out at a press conference this week that humans have not cut our carbon emissions, though some countries have. People emit roughly 40 gigatons of CO2 every year, which means we will exhaust the new budget of 250 gigatons in a little more than six years. It's clear that high likelihood options for limiting warming to 1.5 degrees are gone, and they've been gone for a long time. Unquote, Yori Rogels, a Belgian climatologist working in London who co-authored the study. So if the world takes drastic actions to limit greenhouse gas emissions starting tomorrow, limiting warming to 1.5 degrees will still be something of a coin flip. He says there's still a chance to limit warming to 1.5. He and his co-authors stress that their report should not be used as weight for Climate doomerism, under the most ambitious scenario, he says, our best estimate that warming will be slightly above 1.5. That doesn't mean we're spinning out of control, unquote. Christopher Smith, studies co-author and a professor at the University of Leeds, said, quote, we don't want this to be interpreted as we have six years to save the planet, but we do want to underline how close we are to 1.5 degrees and the seriousness of the issue. Quote, if we were able to limit warming to 1.6 degrees, Smith says, that's a lot better. We still need to fight for every tenth of a degree. Unquote. Now news of our friend the Atom. Save to meter. Save, save to meter. 
United States has started to buy bulk Japanese seafood to supply its military in um, Japan in response to China's ban on such products imposed after Tokyo released that treated water from its crippled Fuk plant into the sea. U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Rahm Emanuel, who knew? That's where Chicago kicked him. Said Washington should also look more broadly into how it can help offset China's ban that he said was part of its economic wars. China, which had been the biggest buyer of Japanese seafood, says its ban is due to food safety fears. The UN's nuclear watchdog vouched for the safety of the water release that began in August from the plant. It's going to be a long-term contract between the U.S. Armed Forces and the fisheries and co-ops here in Japan, unquote, Emmanuel. The best way we've proven in all the instances to kind of wear out China's economic coercion, Emmanuel added, is to come to the aid and the assistance of the targeted country or industry, unquote. Asked about his comments, China's foreign ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin said the responsibility of diplomats is to promote friendship between countries rather than smearing other countries and stirring up trouble. Unquote. But that's wrong. And nuclear proliferation experts are warning that 50 years of policy designed to limit the spread of nuclear weapons is unraveling as governments invest in certain small modular reactors that could be misused to build bombs. This is from Canada's National Observer. The concerns are aimed at Moltex, a St. John's New Brunswick nuclear startup building small modular reactors, your SMRs, that will be powered with spent fuel from regular reactors to make the fuel Moltex plans to separate plutonium from uranium in waste and use the extracted plutonium to power new SMRs. It is this separation process that led a dozen nuclear scientists to write to Prime Minister Trudeau in September, warning that Moltex is a nuclear weapon proliferation risk and calling for a formal risk assessment of emerging nuclear technologies. Edward Lyman, Union of Concerned Scientists Nuclear Power Safety Director, was one of the signatories of the letter. Lyman testified multiple times before the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission on the topics of nuclear power safety, security, and proliferation, said that by separating and concentrating plutonium, Moltex is completing one of the most difficult steps on the path to making a bomb. The very process is itself, he says, a very serious proliferation and security threat, quote, because you're simply doing the work of the bad guys for them by concentrating and extracting plutonium, unquote. Extracting plutonium from nuclear waste, converting it into a fuel, and then transporting the fuel to a reactor increased the nuclear weapon proliferation threat Quote, immensely, unquote, Linen said. The alternative is leaving the plutonium in the waste where it's more difficult to extract, he says. 
Currently, nuclear waste created by existing reactors is stored in facilities designed for interim storage. But because the waste stays radioactive for thousands of years, long-term storage solutions are a, quote, pressing concern, unquote. Canada is exploring plans to deal with the waste by burying it deep underground. Both recycling and burying spent nuclear fuel come with risks. Burying the waste deep underground could hypothetically mean the site could be exploited as a plutonium mine for future nuclear weapon production. Reprocessing it could open the door for clandestine repurposing. The reactor technology is still being developed in the view of nuclear weapon proliferation experts interviewed by Canada's National Observer. The Moltex design is similar enough to previously studied nuclear technologies that are called proliferation-prone rather than proliferation-resistant. For that reason, they say the company should be stopped in its tracks. And of course, it doesn't use tracks. News of our friend the Atom. And now, the Apologies of the Week. Rifts and disarray among Israel's top leaders erupted into the open last Sunday when Prime Minister Netanyahu appeared to blame the military and security establishment for the failures that led to the surprise Hamas assault on October 7th. Comments by Netanyahu on X, formerly Twitter, prompted a furious response, including one from within his own war cabinet. The post was deleted, and the Israeli leader apologized in a new post, saying, I was wrong. Things I said following the news conference should not have been said, and I apologize for that. Unquote. Netanyahu. NASA issued an apology for a slightly weird post on X that questioned people's ability to visit Jupiter. In a recent social media post, NASA wrote, quote, is visiting Jupiter on your bucket list? Let's face facts. It's not going to happen. Unquote. The space agency then went on, went on to encourage space fans to send their names on board the upcoming Europa Clipper mission instead to study Jupiter's icy moon Europa. That'll happen next October. NASA had good intentions, but feelings were hurt, according to Gizmodo. Quote, NASA really out here telling kids to stop dreaming and instead engrave their name on a tiny plate, said an intern at SpaceX, writing on X, signing it with an X, I guess. Others accused the space agency of being dis dismissive and discouraging explorers from aiming for the impossible. NASA issued an apology two days later on X. Hey, folks, we goofed up. We want to be clear. We're always reaching for the stars and planets and moons, and we want what we do to inspire you to do the same. Never stop dreaming. The space agency even added a face-palming astronaut GIF to really hammer in how sorry it was. British retailer Marks & Spencer apologized after posting a picture from its Christmas catalog showing red and green paper hats in a burning fireplace that were compared to a Palestinian flag. The company, one of the best-known names in British business, apologized for, quote, any unintentional hurt caused 
after sharing the image on Instagram. Marks and Spencer, which started life in 1884 when a Jewish immigrant, Michael Marx, came to the north of England, faced some criticism on social media over claims it was making a political statement. The retailer deleted the Instagram post. It said, quote, while the intent was to playfully show that some people just don't enjoy wearing paper Christmas hats over the festive season, which they do in Britain, we have removed the post following feedback and we apologize for any unintentional hurt caused, unquote. Air Canada has issued an apology to a man who uses a wheelchair, saying it violated Canadian disability regulations when he was forced to drag himself off a flight because of a lack of available assistance. Rodney and Deanna Hodgins of Prince George, British Columbia, were traveling to Vegas from Vancouver in August when an Air, crew, Air, Air Canada crew member told the Hodgins he would need to get to the front of the plane, would Rodney without any assistance. He has cerebral palsy and uses a motorized wheelchair. He usually exits planes with the help of an aisle chair, a narrow version of a wheelchair. The 50-year-old dragged himself through the aisle to the front of the plane by pulling on seat legs with his wife crawling behind him, moving his legs. The incident, which caused him significant pain, garnered national and international attention. A representative with Air Canada sent them a lengthy statement which read, It was a very inconvenient and humiliating experience for both of you. I am genuinely sorry to hear about your and your husband's experience and offer my sincere apologies for the experience. Based on the information we currently have available, we have to regrettably admit that Air Canada was in violation of the disability regulations. I reiterate my genuine apologies for disappointing you. The airline offered the couple $2,000 in flight credits. Maybe 5000 Maybe you should think about. Dateline Hollywood HBO chief executive Casey Bloys. I said Casey Bloys apologized this week for directing staff to anonymously fire back at TV critics online, calling it a, quote, very dumb idea, unquote. On Wednesday, Rolling Stone published a report that cited text messages obtained as part of a lawsuit filed by a former HBO executive that showed Bloys asking employees to troll critics sharing unfavorable reviews of HBO content on social media. Quote, I have progressed over the last couple of years to DMs, he said Thursday. When I take issue with something, I DM you. Many of you are gracious enough to engage in a back and forth with me. He said his text messages sent a couple of years ago were sent at a time when he was home during the pandemic and spending an unhealthy amount of time scrolling Twitter. Quote, I apologize to the people mentioned in the leaked emails, texts. No one wants to be part of a story they have nothing to do with. Unquote. Casey Bloys. No, I didn't say he was just one of the Bloys. Why do you... 
Emily Hampshire has apologized for dressing up as Johnny Depp and Amber Heard for Halloween, along with a friend, following criticism on social media. Germany's president on Wednesday apologized for killings under colonial rule in Tanzania more than a century ago as he met descendants of an executed leader of a revolt against German rule and vowed to seek answers to questions about that era that leave Tanzanians no peace. President Frank-Walter Steinmeier, in a visit to Tanzania, noted that many bones and skulls were taken to Germany from East Africa, ended up in museums and anthropological collections, and that they were largely forgotten after the end of the colonial era and two world wars. One of those skulls could be that of Chief Songea Mbano, who was executed by the Germans in 1906. German East Africa, today's Tanzania, Rwanda, and Burundi, existed from 1885 until Germany's defeat at the end of World War I, when it lost its colonies. During the Treaty of Versailles, up to 300,000 people are believed to have died during the Maji Maji Rebellion against the colonial power between 1905 and 1907. Steinmeier said that Mbano was a brave leader in the rebellion and later rose at his grave in a wreath in a mass grave of 66 other fighters in the uprising. I bow to the victims of German colonial rule, said Germany's president. And as German president, I would like to apologize for what Germans did to your ancestors here. Unquote. Congressman Steve Womack, an Arkansas Republican, posted a joking message to social media following the House of Representatives' decision not to expel Representative George Santos, you know the guy. Quote, last night the House saw its shadow, wrote, Womack wrote. Unfortunately, this means two more weeks of Santos, unquote. Santos responded with a vitriolic post of his own, highlighting Womack's son's criminal history as a drug addict. Then Santos issued an apology. Quote, I have the maturity and humility to acknowledge and accept when I'm wrong. Today I had a misguided moment of rage and lashed out against a colleague's family member after he was critical of me. I've always held the standard that our families are off limits, and I crossed that line, and for that I am embarrassed and deeply sorry for doing so. So see, Santos draws lines sometimes, somewhere, somehow. And Dateline Tokyo, a Tokyo-based publishing company, on October 30th apologized to the Ukrainian embassy after its magazine compared the Russian invasion of Ukraine to a catfight. I said a catfight. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. Back next week, same time, same radio station, or the time of your choosing on the audio device of your choice. Be lovely if you came back here then. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego desk. Pam Halstead and Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts and the playlist of the music heard here, here, as well as a lot of other stuff to read and watch and ponder, all at harryshearer.com. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions, originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City.